Welcome to Mouth Off, this is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name's John Lyons and this is the second part of our two-part look at nostalgia in the movie industry. This is the interview that we did with Keith Coogan, the star of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and Adventures in Babysitting. He's got a really good take on what it means to be a child star of the 80s and how his career has gone and how Hollywood treats its child actors. It's a great interview, uh, I hope you do enjoy it. Do let us know your feedback, mouth off at heyyouguys.co.uk. Okay, so we're joined now by two very fine people. Um, we have Keith Coogan, who some of you may know as um, the star of uh, two 80s films, which are very dear to our hearts. Uh, Don't Tell Mum the Babysitter's Dead and Adventures in Babysitting. Um, Keith is uh, currently joining us from LA, I believe. Is that true, Keith? Hello, I am in Hollywood, California. Hello, everybody. That sounds great. We're we're in London at the moment, and it's very dark and very cold. So I hope it's very warm and sunny out where you are, Keith. Oh yeah, of course it's eighty degrees and it's a clear blue sky. <laughs> I hope you're all bitterly jealous. Yeah, we are. <laughs> um, also joining us uh, for this conversation, uh, we have Andy Petru, who is a writer on our site. She is our resident goonie. Andy uh, found us very very early on in our in our career on the web uh, when she was working with uh, the Goonies.org. So Andy, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> okay, um, this conversation that we're going to have now is um, part of uh, a wider podcast that, that I'm putting together currently, um, and it was uh, really spawned out of two events that happened recently. One of them was during the Oscars when they had a special tribute to John Hughes, the director who died last year, um, where they had a lot of the stars of the um, of, of his films come out, give a real personal tribute, and it got me thinking on the notion of, of nostalgia and how far we've moved on. Um, and the second uh, event which has kind of um, set this in motion uh, was the sad news of, of Corey Haim's death last week. Um, that really, uh, I think, hit us quite hard, especially on the site where we have this contingent of, of 80s enthusiasts. Um, and it got me thinking about the notion of nostalgia, um, in in our world, um, being you know fans of of, of 80s cinema, uh, and you know now the fact that we've you know that we've grown up, um, and also the fact that Hollywood is using nostalgia in a real particular way at the moment. So can I just ask you, Keith? Can I just get your take? Um, did you see the Oscars? Did you see the John Hughes tribute? Oh, I did. I saw that tribute. Um, not only during the tribute, but also in presenting Oscars to different actors. Uh, what they instead of having just a presenter, they had co-stars or people that had done significant benchmark pictures in those particular actors and actresses' lives, they were presenting, and, and it was almost like they didn't need to give it out award at that point, because you had such great personal uh, kind of rewarding of each of the actors. Um, that was a really neat touch, too, when they had individual kind of presenting of, of why they were nominated. Um, I, I loved it. I, I, you know, Everyone looked great. That's true, and uh, it, it was interesting to see that John Hughes warranted this, this uh, you know, this huge section of uh, the Oscars, and I think that you know a lot of us who who loved the films there, uh, we were really you know touched by it, and um, and also it was a, a, a real moment to see Matthew Broderick and Molly Ringwald back on stage, you know, looking you know looking a little older than we than we're used to them, but just telling the stories, it seemed to be a really personal thing. Is that the impression that you got? 
Oh, sure. I think that, that uh, John, John Hughes was very private. Um, not a lot of people really, it wasn't about him. It was about his films, uh, about his characters. He pretty autobiographical, I'm sure, but I can bet that he wasn't the jock. I bet you John was closer to the brain, um, to the nerd, to farmer Ted. I think he was closer to those characters that were felt a little outside of society and were really eagerly, anxiously uh, wanting to belong to something, belong to a home. Their home life, you know, mom and dad is in the corporate world and they don't understand and I'm alone here. Well, you turn and you look to, you know, your peers and John Hughes's films had a way of sharing all of those fish out of water moments, all of those outsider moments, um, probably because he, he, he went through it too and he was very honest about that. So they become very personal movies to everybody. I was trying to think of his best movie and I have to think it's Breakfast Club. It's perfectly distilled, five archetypes, five caricatures that become good characters. And if you can't identify with one of those five kids, and of course you grow up and you start identifying with the principal, but, uh, you know, (laughs) maybe his really most intimate movie. That, I, I think that that is his seminal work for me. My own personal favourite is Ferris Bueller because it came out at a time where I was uh, younger than Ferris, but he was the guy that I wanted to be. Um, Andy, what about you? Did you see the Oscars? Did you see the the tribute? What did you think about it all? I caught I caught the um, tribute after the the fact. I didn't stay up and watch it, unfortunately, but I did uh, manage to catch it on YouTube on the few channels that are still able to show it. Um, and it was absolutely phenomenal. It was like catching a piece of um, history, seeing the guys reunited again. It was really kind of special, but bittersweet, you know, to see them under those circumstances doing that. I agree. And just just for the record, what is your favourite John Hughes film? Do you know what? I have to be honest with you. I think I probably caught Weird Science first, and I would say that was my (laughs) favourite. Yeah. Okay. And did you... I would have to just because of the order in which I caught them, and and I think I caught that one first. I understand. I mean, when when we on the site did um you know heard about about John Hughes, there was a we each did um a bit of a retrospective on on each of his films. I I did Ferris because that was my one, but the one that a lot of our readers you know really gravitated towards was The Breakfast Club. Perhaps because Keith, like you said, there were these different archetypes, and they did resonate with so many people and kind of put it together in the most perfect way. Um, I think I'll be able and to so watch. So Andy them. identifies with the uh, horny young teenager boys. <laughs> How did that happen, Andy? But no, I, we you know what weird science came up when we were talking about his great films, and I was like, well, you know, what about weird science? It was so like penultimate of what John Hughes had been doing at the time, and fun. Ferris Bueller is more fun than yeah, Breakfast Club. Uh, Sixteen Candles has enough pathos in it. Um, I really feel for her, and she's overlooked that day. It's a sad day, really, and it's a fun movie. But um, but weird science really is. Uh, that's high on my favorites. Uh, you've got Robert Downey Jr. You've got some great people in there. Um, uh, Paxton, Bill Paxton, uh, just great. Uh, that is a, a, a great film. Doesn't cover as deep of the social yeah. issues as let's say Absolutely. Breakfast, but, Absolutely. but um, certainly is very John Hughesy. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Andy, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I would just have to say, really, it's just purely because of the, the age factor when I first caught it. And then I think I caught Ferris Bueller in 97, one of my best friend's introduced mm. me to it and I swear to god I've probably seen that more times now it's just every kid's dream is to kind of do what Ferris did and um, it's that feeling of that rebelliousness and, and, and you know just being able to make your own dreams come true and not really fear the consequences of your, of those actions really and so that kind of appealed to the older kid in me but then Breakfast Club for me it has it does have the, the, the most depth to it and 
it does have the probably one of one of or if not the best ending movie quote I think mm. as well it's that most kind of powerful ending the fantasy wish fantasy wish fulfillment ending you know I was thinking about um one of his movies that just doesn't seem to fit in the tome and it's some kind of wonderful here you I have the same that. story fits in with so many like like um pretty in pink and whatnot but it takes place in Los Angeles. So you really burn, you've got the, the, um, uh, the Hollywood Bowl, you've got these, you know, the wrong side of the tracks of Los Angeles. But it's weird, by taking it outside of Sherman, Sherman Ohio, uh, uh, Illinois, by taking it outside of, of Chicago, it tweaked it a little bit. It was, it was kind of weird. I like Some Kind of Wonderful. I think it's a great film. Oh, I love that film. Who can't relate to it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> right. Um, okay, well, I mean, it's, it's clear that I mean, you know, that John Hughes had a real power when it came to being able to tell these stories, and I think he was, um, you know, a seminal director. Because Hollywood is is you know so so caught up in the notion of remakes and in, in the notion of you know using nostalgia as almost like a currency to build its future you know release schedules. Uh, what do you guys think about the notion of anyone going back and remaking a John Hughes film? Do you think it'll ever happen? Oh, I'm sure it's bound to happen. I yeah. think that um, I love that you keep using the word nostalgia. And one of the definitions of nostalgia, a wistful or often excessively sentimental yearning for a return to a past period or time or a piece of art like that. And, and it, it's, it may be excessively sentimental. Some of the films really do hold up. Um, is it us remembering the time and the innocence of the eighties or innocence of the eighties really? Uh, or is it, uh, or was there, you know, um, some really good art? I think that if, when John Hughes made his movies, he is talking to his own audience. He's not just trying to make a buck. Yeah. And that today, unless you had a real point of view from the filmmaker, there'd be no point to make those movies unless it is to make a buck. So unless there's a really fresh point of view that is talking to the audience that it's made for. Um, I don't know that they'll really swallow it. Andy, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I kind of agree with Keith. I mean, I think ultimately in this day and age, it's really hard to um, avoid anyone actually sort of cashing in on a previously successful franchise and trying to make their own, you know, stamp on it and everything. But I, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just don't think Hollywood is kind of ever going to leave everything alone. I think n nothing is sacred. So, um I actually fear the day that they make a new Ferris Bueller film or like another Breakfast Club or another, you know, it, it would actually be terrifying if they did. But I mean, who's to say that they won't? It's just um, the nostalgia element. I don't know whether it's, you know, some people, as Keith say, you, you know, you sort of reflecting back to an era. Is that when, you know, people are feeling down, that they look back at happier times and it, that's the type of nostalgia or is it a different kind of nostalgia? And I, I think it all depends on the frame of mind when you ask the question, how people answer it. Weird science. Uh, the uh, um, wait, what was I thinking of? Uh, uh, Havana Nights. Yeah, weird science. Havana Nights. A deeper shade of blue. I mean, do they do? You know, and they're talking about the Adventures in Babysitting uh, retooling. Uh, they're talking about not a remake. They're talking about a reimagining. Yeah, we're acknowledging that it's today. We're acknowledging it's not the same exact story. It's different people. Um, I'm very interested, personally attached to the project. I'm very interested in, in what point of view they're going to take. Um, you know, we had a different, there was a clash, there was suburbia and the safe, nice suburbia that allowed kids to think about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be and how much their ego is involved with, 
you know, their peers and the social aspects of growing up, which is really a primer for growing up. Um, and, you know, times have really changed. Kids are a lot wiser. They're on Twitter and they get a lot more knowledge by the time they're 14 than I had at 20. Um, and so they have to, to stay with the times. Um, but kids, you know, kids may be even more confused now. They're just so damn cool and they're so tough. They don't show their vulnerabilities. And that's what John Hughes really gave all of the teen actors was at the time when my grandfather stopped working because he was a teenager, here you have John Hughes opening a market that as soon as you get pimples, as soon as the hormones kick in, as soon as you start feeling weird, that's when people want to see this and that's when other kids will pay for it. And you had a shift of, of marketing. Instead of um, now the power in a 16-year-old girl's hands goes and sees Titanic a million times. Uh, now they're really making product for the young market. In the old days, I think you had people like John Hughes making it for the people that were of his age that remember being in school. He wasn't necessarily, I mean, I love Breakfast Club, but I don't think it was made for someone who was in junior high, high school at the time like I was. It may have been made for people that are already post-college and thinking about, wow, we really did pigeonhole each other when we were in school and we'd really supported each other. Maybe things would have been different. Um, so, I, you know, I'm a, it's a real mixed bag on the remake. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I don't think you could ever, 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 ever remake Ferris with the same the same elements. Um, you're never going to surprise an audience like that again. I think um, you're right, Keith. I think one of the things that, that's been interesting that, that you were talking about was the notion of um, it not being nostalgic at the time. Uh, sorry, it, it actually being nostalgic at the time. So, I, And immediately my mind went to Back to the Future when, of course, you have you know these filmmakers and the people writing it uh, going back to their childhood almost, you know, actually taking a kid out of the 1980s and, and saying to you, right... You know, thirty years ago, things were very different, and being able to then play about with, you know, the TV, with with the music, with their own lives. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. I think that was the kind of nostalgia that, that they were going to. And in 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 me, when when I saw the Oscars tribute, and I was thinking about all the films, like for example, as soon as as uh, we heard about John Hughes, um, John Hughes dying, you know, immediately we were on Amazon or on Play dot com, you know, trying to get as many of the DVDs that we didn't already own. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and I think that the nostalgia is just inherently personal to us. Andy, what do you think about that? No, I completely agree. And I think it's quite common for when, when something like that happens, when, when someone, you know, who you can identify with from, from your youth or from, well, I guess any period of your life where they had impacted you in a personal way for, for, for whichever reason, it's, I think it's quite natural that you want to kind of quickly rush out and, be able to connect with that thing that you know you 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 miss and and similarly when John Hughes died I think I did actually myself also go out online and you know buy a couple of films that I didn't have and and again also recently with Corey Haim I mean I was desperately trying to get license to drive the other night as you know John and and it, and it was more to catch up with one of my favorite films because it serves as a as a happy reminder doesn't it yeah of, absolutely so. Um, it's funny, every time I think about my experience as a child actor, I go, God, it would be, you know, how could you really put that on film and write something from the point of view of a kid working? I'm like realizing, oh, wait, Curly Sue has been made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and well, that too. Um, Keith, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, some of you said before, uh, the advances of babysitting are retooling. Does, does that mean that that's currently on the go? Are you, and, uh, are you involved with that? I'm, I'm not really involved. I, I'm trying to keep in touch with um, one of the surviving producers, Linda Opst. And uh, it's being right now called Further Adventures in Babysitting. So it's an acknowledgement that it's, 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 it's another t- telling of a situation. 
And uh, I'm sure that they're trying to find a way to uh, nod that the original characters exist, and maybe they're maybe they're in this universe. Maybe I, you know, I would die to play a car thief or or some zany character. We we had some great screenings here at the New Beverly Cinema here in Los Angeles, a great old revival house theater that shows 35 millimeter prints, double features for seven dollars. Great freaking deal! And you got two dollar popcorn, two dollar sodas, one dollar candy. You just you can't get that experience anymore. And we had a um a little Keith Coogan double feature. They did Adventures in Babysitting slash Toy Soldiers as a double That's feature. So and it was so fun, and I did some Q&A. And, and in watching the movies again, especially Adventures in Babysitting, I realized it wasn't so much of suburbia going into urbia. It wasn't so much as the kids are, you know, out going into the city, and it's, ooh, it's this. It's, <laughs> it really was about um, insanity. Adventures in Babysitting more was just zany. It was going in, and these people were crazy. It wasn't about what they did or that they were car deep or this and that. It was that they were a little unbalanced, I think, living in the city. And so it was an innocent take on, you know, going into the city. Now it would be funny if the kids were a little more savvy than what they encounter. And kids pretty much are. Um, what could you do? Instead of singing in the blues, are they going to rap? I mean, I, my, the audience groaned when I said, you know, babysitter, maybe she'll rap to get off the stage. They're like, oh, God, don't do it to us. Uh, that'd, be like a, that'd be like a cameo from 50 Cent. He'd walk out and start rapping or something. Uh, you know, nobody leaves this place without laying a groove. I mean, it's just... Okay. I, we'll take I, them I, um, to the I also have got to know that, that, you know, maybe what's been stalling the production of the movie is they really want a solid script. They really want to take you on an adventure and they want to take a strong female lead character um, and, you know, revisit that idea. It was 23 years ago. It's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, just don't make a mess of it, right? I think that's the... No, and of course, I would be begging for, you know, a cameo. I, I think that that, that's, um, that that has to be on, on, on the cards. Do keep us informed if, if anything goes on with that, because I know we've got many people who would be interested to still, you know, to see uh, a revisiting of, uh, of the babysitting we'll, years. We'll call it another night on the town. <laughs> you know, you, you know, Keith, you are giving them ideas, so you want to maybe start that. But um, I think um, move, moving on slightly from from the notion of um, of nostalgia as as we feel it, um, one of the things, Keith, I'm interested um, about your perspective because obviously you were a child actor and you were a child actor where you know in in the eighties where a lot of our you know real um, you know love for for cinema came in what was what was your experiences being in that world because of course we saw it from from the other side we saw it from the other side of the screen how how do you think things have changed between uh, you know then in the 80s and and now i think the commoditization and the sexualization of young performers is what's changed the most um number one in the past kids were merely a cast member they certainly didn't get paid as much they didn't get the same billing and they didn't hang a, a production or a series or a movie on the child performers now to get the child market they certainly are and so now you have leads now you have kids that have empires uh the the who you know people i admire the most are the full house twins they worked for every penny of the billion dollars that their empire is worth I don't care so much about a Paris Hilton because she inherited the money. She didn't work for it. Those kids that were child stars that, you know, Lindsay Lohans and whatnot, that create an empire. And a lot of it has to do with help from Disney. They know how to market to kids. Um, so what's different is that now there's an acknowledgement that kids are a little more even. They can certainly earn as much money. You have a Macaulay Culkin situation. I'm sure he was earning way much more money than Joe Pesci by the time sequels were rolling around. Um, and so it's, and there's an expectation. There's always been an expectation to be an adult uh, in a, a kid in an adult's world. You're working with serious millions of dollars and whatnot. But now there's, they're, they're not acknowledging the kid. 
at all. They want us to grow up way too fast, and these kids have to be pretty business savvy, and they are. Um, you're Justin Bieber's, whatever. Everybody, they're all very savvy. They're good at PR. They're good at keeping their, their images clean and, and, and what is marketable. That pressure has got to be so much more than it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you turned and you looked at the other kids working and you're like, well, we're on the same boat. We're kind of unsung. We work hard. We support our families. But we like what we do. Nowadays, I can't say that they like what they do as much. It's turned into this grind of products and albums and releases. And and you see it getting to them. I think there's a lot more substance abuse today than there was back in the day. Um, back in the day, you had a lot more kids that turned into a Kirk Cameron and go, you know what? I don't need all that kind of stuff. Um, you also had some that went really overboard. And we lost probably the most, the greatest and the most open, most sensitive the actors, the Brad Renfro's, the River Phoenixes, the Corey Hames. Mm-hmm. That's who we lost. Well, Everybody else is kind of tough and had a tough shell. Maybe their work isn't quite as impactful. Maybe they're maybe they got too tough of a skin. Yeah, they're survivors, but they didn't let the audience in as much as those that were vulnerable. And we really, you know, we want to take care of those vulnerable ones. I, you know, I was really sad to lose all three. Uh, and Andrew Kenning too. Andrew Kenning was a fantastic guy, great talent, and um, you know, uh, went went through his thing. And and and, and it's really, really, really sad to lose people at all. Um, same amount as adults, though. It's just a lot of pressure for kids. So that's probably changed. There's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more millions. You got to hope oh, we got a $13 million house in the hills. We got to keep paying. When I was a kid, it was, oh, we got to make a $700 house payment. Much different. One of the things that, that you mentioned is one of the things that we, we had to, uh, on, on, online to discuss here. But um, Andy, I believe that you saw the, the Corey Feldman appearance on, on Larry King. Um, and he was talking about Hollywood and their relationship to, to, to child stars. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I didn't actually see that. I mean, I mean, it was it was really difficult to obviously watch that um, that show that night when Corey Feldman went on to see, to speak to Larry King. But I think he made a really interesting and valid point about you know Hollywood's responsibility to to its child actors because you know they it's an industry that that puts these 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 amazingly talented kids up on this this really high pedestal. But you know, as as great as it is when when they're up there and they're at their highest height. You know what happens when they, fall, you know what happens if they fall. What, who's there to to help them out? And you know, I think Corey Feldman had a really, you know, a very emotionally driven but valid point. And I, I just, I, I wanted to know Keith really what your thoughts were about that because, you, as you, I'm really- going to cut into his validity a little bit and say that um, from firsthand experience, I can say that Corey Haim had all the positive ex- uh, reinforcement, all of the love, all the emails, all the fan mail. All the fawning, can I get your picture? Can I get an autograph? All that stuff that you, you can't really buy, yeah. he had in spades. Mm. So that wasn't the cause of his pain. No. Um, and I think in terms of Corey saying, well, everyone should pay attention and love child stars and you know they, they deserve it. Well, the ones that deserve it, deserve it. You have a chemical or yeah. substance addiction, you can't keep working and you're mm. not insurable. So if you want the attention, if you want the success, keep it together. I'm sorry. You have to take some personal responsibility. I don't feel bad for Corey Haim. He had all the love in the world. That wasn't what was doing it. Um, mm. You are responsible for whether you work or not. You know, you, you, it, it, it's really hard. And if you need the help, there's plenty of people there to help. I've offered to help everybody. I'm sure Corey Feldman. He did the best thing in the world. He said to Haim, he said, I cannot continue our relationship unless you really make an effort to get clean and sober. He knows he knew that was best for him. And, and, and more so, he's gone through it. Um, yeah. And really confronted that. 
so I, I don't think that anybody, um, I don't think that Corey Haim deserved anything from anybody. He got it. He got plenty of it in spades. In terms of working, that was really his own responsibility. Sorry, but that's just the way that I feel. No, that's fair enough. I mean, that's what we want to hear, isn't it? We want to know what your thoughts are because, you know, you, you, you see all these different um, people in the industry and then you truly wonder what the experiences are on the inside because you don't get to see what the experiences are on the inside. Yeah. You can only I mean, you're imagine- putting out a full-page ad and variety reporter that says, I'm back and I'm ready to work and I'm ready to make amends. Great. Do you show up to reading sober? Do you show up on time for costume, you know, for fittings? Do you show up? Apparently mm-hmm. not. So you're not ready to come back. That's what's tough. Those little signs, you know, their producer is like, dude, they're loaded when they came to set. It goes on a production report. That gets submitted. Everybody knows every five minutes that's wasted on a set, the insurance companies write that stuff down. Um, and that's just the sad truth of it. Unfortunately, when you're confronted with a chance, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in Crank 2. Great. You know, you might get a little manic and you might get loaded to try to tamp down some of that excitement. And then you're not 100%. I saw it. It was great. He was great in it. Unfortunately, with Corey Haim, is he could continue working, much like Robert Downey Jr. Um, I heard a great quote. Uh, it was on uh, Home for the Holidays. And um, Jodie Foster said that she never had a problem with Robert Downey Jr. He showed up. He knew his lines and he was ready. But he did junk the entire movie. As long as you're on time, and, you, you know, and that's the thing. Once you got Corey Haim to set, he's brilliant, truly, truly talented. And he rarely, ever, ever would flake. But little indicators early on in something, you know, can really scare people away from hiring you. Mm. So if you're going to be ready to work and put up a big ad, then be ready to work. I think the, I think personally, like for me, it's that kind of feeling. The, part of the reason why I guess it's so sad for, for so many of his fans really is when you see the potential in someone and you know how huge it is and how great their talent has always been. And it's just that, you know, not having that opportunity. And I think it was always that everybody kind of hoped and, felt that one day he'd get his comeback. And I think that's why it's such an emotionally charged kind of... Um, Everybody loves a comeback. Everybody wants to support that. Everyone wants to see... Um, like right now, I'm really rooting for um, uh, Conway, Jeff Conway from Taxi. I want to oh, see yeah, him come back. Yeah, he's cool, man. I like him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's everyone loves a comeback. They love that story, and they love seeing people overcome and, and come back. Um, the, uh, the problem with being a child star is even if you grow up to a happy, healthy adult, you're still a former child star. You may still be an actor. You could even be a star. But, you know, you're still kind of living that thing down because you changed. You're no longer a kid. You're now an adult. So that that's the biggest thing to overcome. Um, and it's not about working. It's about not working. It's about how do you handle yourself when you're not working and what are you doing to create work or just, you know, stay ready for it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely of a kin that you could take that into your own hands. You could be prepared. You could stay ready to work, and that has more to do with it than, you know, of course the fans are behind him, and the fans want to see, you know, success to both, both courts. Absolutely. I mean, we want, we want that too. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really up to the individual performer, I think. And, you know, he had a system, great mom, great dad. Um, I think friends that helped him make good choices. He certainly helped pick good friends over the years. A lot of us really wanted to see him do well. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Really, really upsetting. I was going to say, Keith, um, one of the things that you mentioned there was uh, about being a, a former child actor 
former child star. It sounds like it's 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 a curse in some ways, but it must also be a bit of a blessing because when we did our coverage of of, of Corey Haim, it was as as Andy has said, it was like emotionally charged because we were writing from a sort of a situation where we maybe weren't aware of the other side of of, of, of his life. We were just you know able to see you know the output that he had over the years, and it was fueled by nostalgia. Um, in some ways, if you are a child star, does it mean that um, there's ever a tipping point between it being a blessing and a curse, or are you in control of that the whole time? Um, you're really not in control of it ever. So, you know, perceptions are one thing. Were you known as being a good performer? Were you really talented, or were you a name? Did you, were you just a, a you know a marketable piece of something? Um, there's different. One. I think River Phoenix is a good example of someone who. You know, maybe a little different than Corey Feldman. They're both noted for fantastic performances in Stand By Me. Um, but there's just a different kind of sensitivity. Corey started working at three years old. Um, River came out of a different family situation and might have been more, you know, might have some more pain to draw from and work with. Uh, me too. I have very little pain in my life. So it's very hard for me to get too deep on stuff. I got to really learn how to act. You know what I mean? Um, so people are very natural. And, and that's the thing. I think that Corey Haynes. Brad Renfro, um, River Phoenix, they were all unnatural. They had this gift and they had the charisma. And we really, you know, we wanted to see their characters win. We wanted to root for them. We wanted to do the slow clap. Um, and uh, so, I don't know. You have to ask yourself, let's say that um, Corey Heyman had been given an opportunity a few months ago and he did it. You know, realistically, what what did you expect from him? What would be your, you know, what would be a win? Well, I have to um, not say, just show up and look clear, but he really would have to, sh- you know, I mean, all of us, I think all of the kids have to show something, you know, what are you now? What, what have you got inside of you? And, and what can you share of the story? I could keep it light and fluffy and play stoners my whole life, but I'm going to have to dig a little deeper. I recognize that. And I'm willing to wallow in obscurity for as long as it takes. Um, no way, man. No way. Come back out. <laughs> But it, it sounds like what what is needed, and this is probably true for all you know actors who um, who began working as children, is they need they 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 might have like the iconic performance um, of of their childhood. You know, take Corey Haim. It was probably for us in the Lost Boys, but it's almost as if as their life goes on and they get older and they get wiser, they need to have an iconic performance, equally iconic in their in their adult life. Is that right? Because I'm, I'm thinking of, of Corey Haynes, you know, more recent work. And of course, he was scheduled to star in, you know, maybe the third or fourth Lost Boys sequel, which every pre- manager, every publicist, every agent I talk to right now keeps pulling up the name Jackie Earl Haley. This you've got you've got little children, you've got Watchmen, you've got Freddy Krueger coming out. Um, that's the kind of resurrection of a career. Uh, we're talking the wrestler style, complete surprise them, wow, blow them away. And it has to stand alone as a piece, regardless if they've ever had a past or not. you got to bring it. And, and I think then you'll earn it. But no, doing Lost Boys 3 or doing License to Dive or License to Fly, no, I don't see it. Another License to Drive. Yeah. It was. The, the, the sequels were going to be License to Fly was the second sequel. And the third sequel is License to Dive. Uh, 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 Keith, is that serious or is that just uh, is that a play? No, those were real registered scripts. They're, they're, they're serious. Yeah. No, I, at the uh, Lucas screening the other night, there was a midnight showing of Lucas, which I think is Corey Haim's best. If I had to remember Corey Haim for anything he's ever done, it would be Lucas. Sure. Um, 
just a phenomenal performance by anybody, adult or child. Great, yeah, great. Really good film. Um, yeah. Okay. But Keith, you you um you you worked on Life One Hundred and One with Corey, didn't you? Yes, I did. What was that like? It was great. It was a ride. Um, I, I've known uh, Feldman. I've worked with Corey Feldman several times, and we've been friends since childhood. Uh, I didn't really know Corey Haim. I'd, I'd seen him a few times. He visited one of my sets. Um, I knew one of his girlfriends. And so I wasn't really friends with Haim. And um, I got the movie and uh, flew out to uh, Bowie, Maryland. And um, we shot for uh, three, four weeks or something. It was very low budget. He was one of the producers. He uh, waived some of his fee and then put that back into the movie so that he's one of the producers on it. And um, it was a coming of age. It was basically Lucas goes to college. He even wears the Lucas glasses. I thought it was hysterical. A um, <laughs> bit of a period piece. It's set in 1968. And um, I played a dorm sage that kind of guides him through love and life and growing up. And uh, it, it, we became really close. And afterwards, if you do a movie with Hayne, you inherit him like a hamster. So <laughs> Hayne lived with me on my couch for a month or two after uh, shooting Life 101. Aww. See, that's it. And uh, that, that just sounds, you know, fantastic. And I, I, I think that, you know, with... with all of this talk of, of, of nostalgia and, and, and of remakes, it's, it's nice to go back and, and to see the films for what they were because I think I've talked to a lot of people about nostalgia and the notion of remakes and everything. And to me and to a lot of other people, it is, is the film solid? Is it good work? And in that case, it will stand for, you know, for all time, regardless of how many people saw it when they were you know, of a particular age or how sure. you know, resonant it was of, of a particular time. You no, know. A good example would be... Um... Uh, the the I mean it's not new, but Ten Things I Hate About You yeah. is really Taming of the Shrew. It's got mm. the same rhythm, it's the same rhythm of speech, the same kind of title, Taming of the Shrew, Ten Things I Hate About You, and it's the same story. So this is a remake. It's just been freshened up. It's got a stellar cast. It's got great writing. It's contemporized, but it's shrew. They're doing Shakespeare again. So... Um, there is nothing wrong with, with telling a story and having a point of view and a reason to make it is certainly a plus. Yeah. I, and I think that, I mean, we started our site uh, initially to talk about eighties films because that was where a lot of us, you know, conversation was and very quickly we realized that that has a very limited appeal for us. And it was, you know, and, and our, you know, love of the cinema extended beyond the eighties. It was just like almost like a bit of an anchor for us, which we had to break free from, but you know, we will always have this love and that will always be a very personal thing. Um, and I'm, you know, really, really happy for that, but we're always looking to, you know, to the future now. And, you know, the future is 3d, the future is whatever. Um, Keith, what's next for you? 3D, absolutely. Uh, I would like to produce, direct, write, star in, maybe even edit uh, Zombie Blood Hunt in 3D. See, they're selling all these 3D TVs and all this stuff, and there's just they're going to be four movies available. So I'm going to get some schlocky B credit title in there, and <laughs> one out of every three DVD 3D TV owners will buy my damn horrible movie, I and then it. I'll retire to Aruba. It'll be awesome. <laughs> That's good. Hopefully, Ariba won't be, you know, filled with zombies for you to have to fight off because that would be that would be interesting. But um... ah, yes, <laughs> melee weapon or firearms? I don't know. It's good to think about these kind of things, though, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I, I, the reason I am talking to you right now is because of my love of zombie movies. I started to go to the New Beverly to go to the zombie, the Italian. Um, uh, they made a, these great zombie movies, and they had all these double features. And I've been going and socializing and meeting and talking, and all of a sudden. 
Here I am talking to you guys. So uh, I, I really, it's my love of movies that's kept me uh, kept me in it this whole time. I will always talk about movies. I love them. I love breaking them apart. Um, you know, as a final note, I think the 80s was unique because you had marketing meeting with filmmakers. In the 70s, certainly people had made movies for kids before. But here, they, they could go, all right, forget about the money. It's just going to make money. If you write something from the heart that is talking to this audience. And so you had true artists like John Hughes expressing stuff not just to make a buck. That's why we really, really, really love these movies. They were made um, for pure love and to tell a story, not just to make a buck. So today, if they stay away from just to do it to make a buck, take some risks, I think we'll, we'll have another round of great films. Absolutely. And, you know, audiences are taking more control. They're deciding what endings they want to see. They're deciding what they want on their DVDs. They're deciding whether they want it digital or that or on their TV or on their computer. Power is moving to the consumers. Um, what's going to sell is, is, is what's going to sell, whatever the market bears and however we can get it to them. Um, greater opportunity for more people not to be involved in the studio system. I still want them to hire a union. Please hire SAG actors. They, they, they're really good. Trust me. SAG's the way to go. But I love that independent producers can do something for almost nothing. And they don't have that high overhead, that cost to recoup. They can turn around and sell this stuff and get their stories out. It's a great time. I think digital medium is, is, is like the Gutenberg uh, press. And do you, I mean, just following on from that, Keith, I mean, with the rise of the internet, with the rise of YouTube, do you think that we are still waiting for the first YouTube director to kind of break it out from being just like, you know, millions and millions of like little, little videos to actually being um, something marketable? Perhaps, you know, the, the gentleman that directed the, the Batman short that starred Andrew Kinnig as the Joker. I saw um, that. That was cool. Wasn't it cool? Yeah, it was cool. That guy got a directing deal because of that short. That was amazing. That's the kind of work I'm talking about. Something that just shocks you. You go, I can't believe a studio wasn't behind that. And that's exactly how I envisioned The Dark Knight, everything. So those little things, you know, Coppola said it years ago. Uh, Francis Coppola said, in the future, I am going to be a 16-year-old girl from Kansas with a digital camcorder. <laughs> and she's going to make a movie and it's going to be great and it's going to be Sundance and that's what's going to happen we're on the verge of it right now oh wow that sounds I, so positive and I'm, I'm really hoping that people you know listening out there um, are really inspired by that because I'm thinking about my own I'm, I'm 34 now and when I was 14 all I wanted to do was make films but back then it was all massive VHS cameras that were really expensive you had to like hire out yeah. editing suites it's changed so much now do you know what I mean and I think oh, yeah. we really are seeing it. And, you know, it would be great if there is this, you know, groundswell of, of, you know, really, really talented people who can not just think about doing it and plan it and everything, but actually do it properly. Do you know what I mean? That's going to be Yeah, awesome. And, you know, because they don't have the PR budget and the marketing and the money behind to do distribution and to have prints and get into theaters. I, I have to really honestly admit that, that it's out there now. If you look, you can find tons of independently produced features. So they don't have a chain of title. So they can't sell it to a distributor. So what? It was made. And if you go on Netflix, if you go on Hulu, if you go on all of these sites that stream stuff, Crackle and all those great sites, um, there's already independently produced romantic comedies, horror movies, all that stuff. Um, do it. Buy their $5 DVD. Support those people that are creating it outside the studio system. They're going to get swallowed up by the studio system one of these days. But um, really empowering for people. They can make something. They can put it on Amazon Unbox and sell it tomorrow. Absolutely. And John, you know, recently when we uh, attended the BAFTA event for Jean-Pierre Jeunet, and one of the things he pointed out, similarly to what Keith is saying, is that anybody, if they put their mind to it, can make their own film. You don't have to rely on just going through studios anymore. It's all accessible to you. Anybody can just be creative. Anybody can just do what they want. It's there for the taking. So, you know, what Keith is saying is absolutely dead on right. 
you know. And if you're having like directors like Sinead talking about that and not being afraid absolutely. of it, then absolutely, th- that's to really be celebrated, isn't it? So, okay. Right. Do you, know- you see other filmmakers like David Lynch moving into digital, and they um they embrace. They go, God, this is more along the lines of how my brain thinks anyway. Shoot all this stuff, cut it together, let the brain figure it out. Couldn't do that with film, shooting a 20 to 1 film ratio or something. They would have kicked and booted him out of the studio long ago. But now he can just roll digital, cut his little movies, and bring us something like Inland Empire, which is like taking five hits of LSD all at once. <laughs> Inland Empire is a brain fry, a great film, and, and, and three times as inaccessible as Mulholland Drive. It's great. It's a big puzzle piece. Um, and you just wouldn't have that if digital didn't exist. So it's, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly positive time, and I have to say that it you know, it's kind it of almost like cleansed, cleansed my mind of, of this nostalgia. This is kind of like the, you know, the exit strategy I think we need it for all the nostalgia that's been kicking up yeah. recently. So, um, and you know, the greatest, another great thing is all these layoffs. People are going to be forced into a situation where they go, what am I doing with my life? Well, I have this story. Well, why don't I produce it? Why don't I make a movie? And so this could be a, a freeing, a releasing, and you could get some really good art out of this time, some really personal stories. Um, it is. It's about the story. That's why we go see movies. We don't go because of the set piece. We don't go because of the lighting. We go because of the character journey and that legend of myth. Um, this is why we go. We go to tap into that thing that's, that's human in all of us, and we, and we love to see people win and fight. Um, you know, that, that's, it, it's the entertainment of it. I think it's a great medium. It brings in art. Poetry, dance, photography, writing—it's—it's um, it, it's penultimate. Uh, and so much and, of that, you know, is, Can I just say, Keith? Honestly, yeah. what you just said really is true of what you're doing with your Julie and Julia project, your monologue a day. That in right. itself is pretty much that encapsulated and daily different uh, creative uh, projects you 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 bring out there. They were really, honestly, really a joy to watch. So I just want you to know that you do have. Your fans following you on that, so we hope. Other Thank people- you. I appreciate that. You know, the, one of the biggest things someone I saw on their Facebook was all of a sudden um, photograph a day. A, a week or two into the New Year's, a friend of mine from from back in junior high, day all of a sudden he's posting one of his photos a day, and they're beautiful travelogue kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's awesome. I mean, you know, even if you're not getting paid for it, what do you like to do? Do it every day. I mean, if you guys have ever read the Celestine prophecies or heard about it, there's a theory that really do what you love the world's going to take care of you um Mm -hmm. you know someone will provide a room and board for you if you're really into painting that much um (laughs) someone will take care of you you'll find a benefactor so um yeah i know keep hoping i think it's a very positive time i I, I, the only thing i would get upset about is net neutrality and corporations taking over all the entertainment it ain't going to happen because you're still going to have now these independent people can make stories and they'll kill over studio stuff because if the studio just becomes milk toast and it's awful and it's you know lowest common denominator entertainment uh, nah, not interested you're not going to get me out of my house to go to a movie theater to see that that sounds great okay well i'm, I'm going to bring it to a close now but oh brilliant thank keith, you i can talk all day of course no I, I i had okay. such i had such a good time on this keith can you just tell me where we can find you on the internet with your well, I'm day. really, I love, uh, love the internet. I love the social stuff. So I, you type in Keith Coogan, I got one of those Google IDs and that will lead you to, um, my blog. Uh, I've got MySpace and Facebook and Twitter, uh, all, all under Keith Coogan. Nobody's even pretending to be me. Why would they do that? <laughs> uh, so it's all really me. Um, and also the monologue a day project where I'm putting up something a day, a speech, a monologue, a song, whatever it is. And, um, that's monologue a day, uh, over at Blogspot, you just type in Monologue a Day Project and you should find it no problem. John, would I be able to steal one minute for a little shout-out for, for some girly friends of mine that would love to hear from Keith? 
Of course you may. Can I just say, these are Natalie, Shaz, Lauren, Holly and Sonia, and they absolutely think you're the bee's knees. And um, I just wanted you to let, to let you know that and that they're thinking of you. Well, hi, girls. That's a lot of names. Natalie, Shaz, Lauren, who? Lauren, Holly and Sonia. Holly and Sonia. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for the support. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we were out there in uh, uh, London town uh, last year. Uh, love it. We're trying to get back there. So maybe I'll let What's you guys that? know when I'm in town. Keith, if you are in town, you must Wait. let us know because we will, we will definitely, definitely oh, be there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny. a night on the town. Trust me. <laughs> years and years and years ago, I went and um, this was 87 or so and RoboCop was out. Well, we couldn't see the really, really R-rated version in the States. So I'm in, I'm in London maybe three days, and I take two hours out of my time to go to Leicester Square and see RoboCop. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I love the movies, and I, love, uh, I would love to visit you guys. Okay, well, we're really looking forward to it. Keith, uh, like I said, really, really appreciate the time. It's been so much fun talking to you. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. All my pleasure.